I think what makes the situation in Yemen an emergency is the fact that it's been an emergency for over three years now. When um, a country has been in so much conflict, there's just no money for hospitals or for supplies or even for the staff. And you find that in these places that we work, there are no existing healthcare structures also because the staff themselves are fleeing from violence and fleeing for their own safety. Over the years, what's evident to me is the healthcare structure in Yemen has just become progressively degraded to really quite a broken state. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. That was Dr. Elma Wong, an MSF anaesthetist we recently caught up with after she returned from Yemen in January this year. Yemen is in the grip of war. It's also one of the poorest countries in the world. In 2011, a revolution, part of the so-called Arab Spring, overthrew then-President Saleh. The armed group in the north of Yemen, Ansar Allah, took advantage of the instability. They moved south and captured the capital, Sana'a, seizing power from the government of the new president, Hadi. This Ansar Allah takeover prompted a group of Arab states, led by Saudi Arabia and including the United Arab Emirates, to launch an all-out attack on Ansar Allah positions in March 2015. The result? For over four years, Yemen has seen little respite from bombing, gun battles and widespread destruction. Many hospitals have been destroyed and those still open are in urgent need of medical supplies and staff. These conditions, combined with airstrikes and ground fighting, have turned this conflict into one of the worst man-made humanitarian crises in the world. According to the ACLED, since March 2015, around 60,000 Yemenis, both civilian and military, have been killed. In this episode of Everyday Emergency, we'll be hearing more about Elmer's work in Yemen, which has spanned nearly the entire course of the war. Elmer's recent assignment was her fourth to the country, but before she first stepped foot in Yemen, like most people, Elmer knew little about the country on the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. So when I first found out I was going to Yemen, um, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I had to um, check on a map exactly where it was, and I to do some online searches to check what the most recent headlines were about the conflict. I think, um, as is still the, the situation today, it's, it's a conflict that's hugely underreported. My knowledge of Yemen, apart from it being a country at war, um, was very limited. Maybe that's a good thing. Sometimes it's better not to know too much um, before you go. Getting into Yemen is actually um, not at all an easy process. We go to the nearby country of Djibouti, which is the eastern horn of Africa, and um, I think once every couple of weeks, MSF would charter um, a small plane um, to, to fly the, the distance over the Gulf of Aden into Yemen. And the alternative being a boat um, that was a 17-hour boat ride um, to cross a very choppy um, Gulf of Aden Sea. I've taken both routes and definitely the, the plane is preferable. Since her first assignment with MSF on the Syrian border, Elmer has gotten used to sounds most of us would find unsettling. 
you always hear gunfire and you always hear explosions and it becomes the normality of, of where you are, which is weird, which is weird. I think I remember on one of my first projects, it was when I was on the Syria border and one of my first nights, I was kept up all night um, with noise and I remember speaking with my team members and they, and I said, God, did you hear that thunder last night? And they all looked at me with a wry smile and said it wasn't thunder, Elmo, it was the bombs and explosions. The, the normal sounds sadly are the gunshots and um, you get used to them. The vibrations you feel from explosions nearby, you get used to those too. Elmer's recent assignment was to Mokka, a town on the west coast of Yemen. It sits around halfway between the port cities of Hodaida to the north and Aden to the south. It takes six to eight hours to drive to Aden from Hodaida. While there is medical care available in Aden, few Yemenis can afford it or the travel to get there. The area between the two cities had become a medical wasteland. To counter this, MSF set up a tented hospital in Mocha in August 2018, the only facility in the region with an operating theatre and the capacity to perform surgery. And before you ask, yes, it is where the coffee is from. Over the course of her assignments in Yemen, Elma has responded to numerous mass casualty events. These events are a rare occurrence for most medics in the UK and US, but in Yemen, they happen with alarming frequency. The majority of what, we, what we're doing in Mocha was trauma. The patients, they, they come in um, via ambulance or some sort of random pickup truck. They normally just present to you um, and they get rushed into our emergency room. So a lot of the time you, you don't know what's going to come, you just know there's going to be many. We have a bell in our emergency room, so if, we, if it sounds like there's going to be more than four casualties at one time, they'll, they'll sound a bell. We're a limited team, so all we can do is just at least all be present and ship in. If we know we're going to have several emergencies in at one time, um, there'll be uh, myself, the anaesthetist, um, there'll be a surgeon, there'll be um, a local Yemeni doctor, um, and there'll be a Yemeni doctor on the wards, and we'll all just be there. My role as anaesthetist, I'll, I'll probably try and manage the, 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 the sicker patients. The key to managing a mass casualty event is triaging our patients. This is the process of quickly deciding the order of treatment based on the degree of urgency. The first time I was in Yemen, I worked in Aden, which is our trauma facility. And when I was there, we did have two um, mass casualties as a result of suicide bombers that detonated themselves um, in parts of the city that they knew there would be um, a large um, gathering of people. I think on both of those occasions at the scene there was probably about 50 or so dead. So then it comes to the, the ones that can make it to you. And when you're dealing with mass casualties they are, they're, they're actually quite awful in reflection, largely because of the chaos. Um, the patients are coming and you don't know when they'll stop. There's a degree of organisation but it, but it is chaotic and, and you have the chaos from not only the patients coming in, but the, the relatives and family members of these, of these people that have also involved in this hugely uh, distressful um, time. In anaesthetics in these trauma settings is, is definitely very challenging. I think largely because you're dealing with patients that are coming in the emergency room unstable. 
and you start to resuscitation in the emergency room but then our role is to then get them through um, theatre um, so actually you have to give them a general anaesthetic which um, normally destabilises you a bit more, trying to keep them stable through that process and, and then keep them resuscitated during the procedure itself. And then we continue that resuscitation for afterwards as well. So a lot of our patients will then come to the critical care where, where I'll manage them, um, again, making sure that um, um, blood is given when we need to give it and making sure that we keep an eye on how their kidneys may be functioning, um, how their, their heart is coming along, how their, how their breathing is. At the time, you keep your head, you stay focused and you work as a team when you get through um, the incident and it's a long day and you, you, you get through it largely because as a team you all work forward and you have the same plan um, and the same idea of just getting through the day and getting these patients managed as best you can. And then I guess I'd say afterwards, sometimes it hits you then that um, actually what you've just seen, a you know, terrifying scene of so many people injured at one time. And I guess that knowledge that somewhere quite close to you in the city, 50 to 60 people just lost their life for, for nothing. In early 2018, fighting intensified along the front line between the cities of Taiz and Hodeida in the west of Yemen. Coalition-backed forces advanced on the strategic port of Hodeida before launching an attack on the city in June 2018. To prevent ground troops advancing, thousands of mines and improvised explosive devices were planted across the region's roads and fields. The main victims of these lethal hazards have been ordinary Yemenis many of whom have been killed or maimed for life after unwittingly stepping on an explosive device. In our tented hospital in Mocha, our teams perform emergency surgery on people injured by landmines. One third of our patients are children. We see huge amounts of landmine victims, which is quite a difficult thing to see, actually. It's, it's quite a indiscriminate, devastating violence um, that affects really everybody and really has affected a lot of the civilians in the local populations where, where we work. Kids just playing in the local field, farmers just um, putting their animals out to feed. Um, so it's an, a real indiscriminate form of violence that we see. We set up a, a tent hospital in Mocha region um, which has been an area that's been um, fought over and I think where you have land that's been fought over and different armed groups litter the, the land with landmines to I guess cause destruction um, where they can. One time we had four people from the same family come in um, and there was a dad and uncle who they came in and they were literally gasping their last breaths and then we had the two kids of the family come in, two boys, and and they were alive, but you know, one one got some shrapnel that went into the brain. So we had to manage him quickly and and send him um, off to Aden um, to be managed. And his brother um, had some injuries that we did manage in our facility, but. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to really appreciate how one deals with that.
And I think that's the devastating nature of landmines. You know, he's a seven-year-old kid and how you see your dad and your uncle um, pass away and you see your younger brother um, be critically sick and to not even have your mother support you because she has to go away and travel the five, six hours it takes to get to uh, the next facility that can manage um, the little brother. I think even the most resilient people would struggle, um, let alone a seven-year-old boy. A lot of times you'll have patients um, with big injuries to the chest and the abdomen from the energy that's generated from, from these explosives. Um, and sometimes they can propel patients quite a distance. Um, so it might not even be, um, say, direct injury from shrapnel um, breaking the skin and going inside. It might be the blunt injury from being propelled and, and hitting things along the way. Along with that, head injuries. So if you've had a big projection to be thrown from a, um, a, an explosion, a bomb, and for sure you can have head injuries and neck injuries. And they cause burns, so they, they, they can destroy large surface areas of your skin, um, which is hugely painful, but also, again, very difficult to manage because um, surgically we have to um, make sure they don't get infections in these huge areas um, of where there's been injury. And later down the line, we need to think about how we're going to cover up these big um, holes in their skin and their tissue. So really, they're a, a very devastating, very unjust violence on people. A patient that particularly stayed with Elmer was an eight-year-old girl called Amara. Amara was out playing with friends in a field when all of a sudden she was caught in an explosion. She had no way of knowing that there was a landmine there, so... She came in very critical. Um, sadly, the, one of the boys she was playing with didn't make it. And that's the reality of landmines, that the patients that get to you are the lucky ones. Um, and actually, there are probably people that didn't make it. But she came in um, really quite sick. Um, the explosion had resulted in her having um, fractures to her leg and, and to all the tissue around it. And she also had some injury to her abdomen, so some of the shrapnel had gone inside her tummy. Um, so she needed emergency surgery um, from the abdomen point of view, um, and also to her limb. And she came to theatre really quite, uh, you know, maybe eight to ten times um, for the initial operations, for then further operations to, to sometimes take away tissue because there may be infection, um, her wound wasn't healing so well, you know, she was hugely malnourished, having sustained a massive injury to her very already weak, frail body. The, the demands on that to recover um, are huge. Um, so, so managing her wasn't easy, surgically managing her, but also dealing with the complications of her being malnourished 
and her having problems with fighting infection and her being weak and we had such a dedicated physiotherapist, one of our Yemeni staff, who would work with her every day, but it's, it's difficult because she's tired. And um, bit by bit, she, she fed up. She, she actually started taking more of the food supplements we're giving her and her appetite built up. And I think what was quite nice is that also her, as, as a little girl, um, she became kind of, um, less scared uh, and I think she, she obviously got used to us. It must be such a strange experience as a small child to suddenly be faced with very strange looking people who come and look at you and take you to theatre every other day and don't even speak your language but um, bit by bit she, she really warmed to us and, and at times when she'd come to theatre she'd just hold on to your hands and, and ask you not to leave her. Um, which was just, just super sweet. Um, and sometimes you're really busy and you had to let go of hands, but um, you'd always want to quickly go back and keep her company. Towards the end of the time, she, she had been there at least kind of for at least a month, uh, maybe going on to six weeks. Um, but yeah, she, she left with her grandma. So yeah, she, she sticks to my mind and she, she, did, she did really well. And she picked up weight, which is wonderful to see. Elmer, like most other MSF staff, found readjusting to life at home a difficult process after working with MSF overseas. As the only anaesthetist in Mocha, Elmer's job in Yemen was incredibly demanding both physically and emotionally. It's an all-consuming existence for a couple of months. To then go from one of the world's poorest countries in the middle of a war to a prosperous country like the UK in the space of a few hours can be jarring. The transition of coming back from assignments um, is always harder than when you're on your way out or even sometimes when you're there because you're so focused in what you're doing. You live such a contrasting life um, here um, compared to the life you were, you were living kind of in, in a war zone. So when you're on mission, um, you're there solely just to work. And the types of projects that we do um, in surgery and emergency normally means that you have to be um, available and on call on the night times as well as working during the day times. And I think apart from the physical tiredness, the types of cases that you see, um, they can be relentless. So seeing trauma in the form of you know, gunshots and landmines, um, explosions, burns, um, it's, it's mentally tiring. I guess because I'm, I'm so fortunate to have a job that's, that I really love. You know, I really love working in Worcester and I love um, the department I work with and the colleagues that I have and they're super supportive. And I think it really helps almost in my transition period to come back to a, a setup that I know and I trust and that helps me not have so much time to just think about things. There's always challenging um, cases that might play on your mind. Um, I've, had, I've had that before. Um, and, and some real uh, personal cases just, just have a way of sticking with you. It's not a bad thing. These things, in the end, um, they shape you and they develop you. So it's not a bad thing to have lingering, sometimes, thoughts or cases um, that stay with you. 
and they also help keep you grounded sometimes. I'll be the first to say I can get equally frustrated when our coffee fund is cut in theatres um, and it's quite nice to have that reminder, that perspective of, you know what, this, this isn't a problem. I've seen people with problems. There's huge amounts of challenges um, working in Yemen in, in conflict zones but I'm a firm believer that actually it's sometimes the more challenging things that you have to go through in life that actually shape and develop you the most. So I, th I think for sure I've learnt huge amounts about myself, um, about the person I want to be, had huge amounts of inspiration from other people and a greater appreciation of you know, the, the simple things and um, I think that's a, a, a huge thing to have. If you'd like to hear more about the experience of coming home from an MSF project, have a listen to a previous episode on this podcast called From Conflict Zones to Curtain Shops. Since the conflict escalated in 2015, our teams have treated more than 90,000 people for violence-related injuries in Yemen. We've treated more than 110,000 people for cholera and more than 14,000 people for malnutrition. Right now, MSF teams are working in 12 hospitals across the country and are providing support to more than 20 health centres. Apart from Congo and South Sudan, our work in Yemen requires more resources than any other country in which we operate. Elma clearly understands the need for us to be in the country. If I was asked by MSF to, to go back to Yemen, I would, because I know the conflict and I've seen the devastation um, and I know the importance of, of the support that it, it so desperately needs. It makes me proud to, to be able to work with an organisation that works so effectively and works so much on the ground in so many different places um, and is, is from what I see having some sort of a positive impact. And if we weren't there, um, there wouldn't be anything to support these populations because that's the sad thing. The local healthcare structure is broken um, and somebody needs to be there to fill that gap. The work that um, we're doing, um, I can say really does save lives. And if we weren't there, um, I, c I can't imagine what would happen to these people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. If you're listening to this podcast in the UK close to its release date, we're running an appeal for our work in Yemen. If you would like to support the work of our teams in Yemen, we would hugely appreciate it. Go to msf.org.uk slash podcast. That's msf.org.uk slash p-o-d-c-a-s-t to find out more. Or if you're not in the UK and listening to this at some point in the future, you can help us prepare for the next emergency by giving to our general funds. Go to msf.org to find out where you can donate. As always, it's your likes, comments and shares that help spread the word about this podcast and the work of MSF. If you can, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.